What's up, everybody? This is Cortland Allen from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I ask them how they got to where they are today so that the rest of us can learn from their mistakes and their successes. Today, I'm doing a first for the podcast and actually talking to two guests in the same episode. They are Peter Reinhardt and Calvin French-Owen, the CEO and CTO of Segment, respectively. And Segment is one of the most popular platforms for collecting all of your company's analytical data in one place and then sort of rerouting it to wherever it needs to go. At first, I thought I was flirting with disaster by having two different guests uh, on the podcast at the same time, but it turns out that hearing the perspectives of two different founders of the same company is somewhere close to twice as insightful as just hearing from one. During our conversation, Peter and Calvin begin by sharing the story behind Segment, which really starts with numerous failed attempts to get their startup off the ground. They really had zero success early on and very little to lean on besides themselves, their third co-founder, Ilya, and a rapidly declining bank account. After that, we get into how exactly they found product market fit and created something that people actually wanted to pay for. And we also spend some time trying to put a finger on just why it's so difficult to understand and internalize and consistently apply broad advice like make something people want until you've both failed and succeeded at doing so. I think the contrast between the way their business grows and the types of challenges they have to overcome before and after finding product market fit really illuminates why it's so important to make that the first milestone you need to go after. All of these growth hacking techniques and sales and marketing skills really don't matter until people actually want what you've made. Anyway, I find what these guys have to say very illuminating, and I hope you guys will too. So without further ado, Peter Reinhardt and Calvin French-Owen. Okay, we're trying something different today. Joining me on the podcast is not just one, but two founders, Peter Reinhardt and Calvin French-Owen. They are the CEO and the CTO, respectively, of a very successful and popular analytics company called Segment. How's it going, guys? Good. It's really good to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Corlin. Can you guys identify yourselves and kind of do like a personal intro so everybody can know whose voice belongs to who? Yeah, sure. The, this is Peter, one of the co-founders and the CEO. I studied aerospace engineering at MIT and then uh, dropped out uh, with Calvin to get started on Segment. I'm Calvin, uh, another one of the co-founders and CTO here at Segment. I work primarily at and kind of the back-end infrastructure and a lot of the data pipelines here. As an odd story, I actually knew Peter way back in seventh grade uh, from a summer math camp. Oh, cool. So you guys go go pretty far back. Yeah. Peter, I had no idea you went to MIT, by the way. You were, you were course 16? I was, yeah. Calvin was there, too. Oh, cool. Calvin, what, what course were you? Six. Okay, yeah, me too. That's stereotypical. <laughs> For people listening in, MIT's course numbers go by numbers. So, of course, six is computer science and 16 is aerospace engineering. Yeah, we have, what, 21 departments and all of the humanities are in one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all it's all condensed. But anyway, can you guys give me a description of, of, of what segment is just to provide the listeners with some context and I guess also a description of how you guys would measure your progress and your success? Yeah, so segment is basically a, you can think of it as a living record of your customers and every interaction that you're having with your customers. So we help companies collect data from their websites and their mobile apps and their payment systems and their help desks and pull all that uh, data about interactions with their customers into a single spot. And then we fan that data out to the analytics tools, the email marketing tools, the data warehouses, et cetera, where they actually use that data. So we're sort of like a data sewer system, if you will. We basically sort of invisibly help the data uh, go wherever it needs to go. On the flip side, if Segment ever breaks it, it's kind of a mess. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about that, being in that domain, is that that's not an idea that you could imagine someone just coming up with out of the blue. Uh, and I'm sure you guys have a, a, a zonky story for how you got there. 
but maybe let's start at the beginning since most of the people listening in are, are in a situation where they haven't really started a company yet or, or they're just now contemplating getting started. And so they'd like to hear about how you got to where you are today. You guys met in seventh grade. Did you know back then that you wanted to start a company together or was it something you talked about? <laughs> no, Calvin, you want to take that? Yeah, at that point, not at all. I think all we were focused on was learning trigonometry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the, the the first time we kind of seriously considered starting a company together was kind of after freshman year at college, we met our one of our other co-founders, Ilya, and kind of throughout that year, we would spend times on kind of these harebrained schemes, whether it was to build a digital surround sound setup so that everyone's laptops would be playing the same music, or Peter and I were trying to game this one like online auction site for a little while, basically just like building lots of little hacks around different parts of our life. And even though none of them really panned out or became kind of big projects, we got a sense for what it was like to work together. And then fast forward to junior year, and Peter can probably take this over from here, but Peter and Ilya took this one class called Founder's Journey at uh, MIT. Yeah, and what happened was, uh, it was actually, basically the structure of the class was every week they would bring in a founder uh, who would talk, just tell their story, not dissimilar to, to Indie Hackers. And uh, the first week, uh, this guy Adam Smith came in and just talked about how he had started this company called Zobni, and how they had raised like $45 million and so forth. And I was just like floored. I was like, wow, this is just incredible. And I was just like, I was like idolizing sort of everything, everything about him. And there was this, uh, this funny moment at the end of class where uh, he was sort of milling around talking about a few people. And uh, Ilya, our, our third co-founder, was like, you know what? I'm going to ask if he wants to come back to the dorm for beers. And I was like, dude, don't do that. This is just going to be embarrassing. Like, I don't want to be around when you're going to, when you're going to ask that. Uh, and he's like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to do it. Which, if you know Ilya, is a very Ilya thing to do. He goes over and he's like, hey, you want to come back to the dorm for beers? And Adam's like, yeah, sure. And in like that two-second interaction, the like accessibility of like starting a company, I was like, this is just a normal dude. Uh, you know, I can like, like, I can go to a dorm and drink a beer. You know, it was like so humanizing that it sort of made the entire enterprise feel accessible, if that makes sense. And then and there was a, one, of the, one of the professors of the class was um, this guy, Hamant Taneha, uh, who is a partner at General Catalyst. And at the end of the course, he was like, you know, if anyone wants to come pitch me at you know, General Catalyst headquarters in, in Cambridge after the class, you're welcome to come do so. And so I was like, well, I definitely want to do that. So I went and I pitched him this sort of like harebrained idea for a tool that would let professors monitor whether students were actually reading their course notes. It's a weird idea. Anyways, it's a bad idea. But pitched him on it, and at the end of the conversation, he's like, well, yeah, this is cool. If it's going well in the spring, we'd be happy to put in 100K. <laughs> Dang. And I was like, what? I have never seen that many digits, and we're like off by two digits from the amount of money I've ever seen before. And so I was just like, this is crazy. Um, so maybe this is like a lot easier than it seems. So we had just like a sequence of these sorts of experiences that, that led up to us applying to Y Combinator in the spring of 2011 um, that just made everything feel like, okay, this is doable. And, you know, frankly, we were in sort of a, a good, unusual like time and location to actually get exposed to these things. It's pretty lucky. So they didn't have the course that you took when I was at MIT, or if they did, at least I didn't know about it. Uh, but interestingly enough, I also was really inspired by having Adam Smith come give a talk. I don't know what the event was exactly. I think it was something put on by Y Combinator. They're going from campus to campus, but 
Adam Smith came and talked about his experience. And I did not think to ask him back to my dorm for drinks. But uh, <laughs> I talked to him a lot at the event, and it was just incredible to me as well. Uh, I think one of the things that you said that stuck out to me was how you were inspired by the fact that he was just a normal dude. And it made it seem like it was possible for you to do something that was similarly incredible. But at the same time, all three of you guys are far from normal dudes and 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 the common way that people might think of it. I mean, all of you went to MIT. What do you think, you know, sets you apart? Or do you think anything sets you apart? You know, do you think anybody could have done what you guys have done? I think a lot more people could do this than think they can. I think there's like a pretty significant like idolization of of, of founding things, of of CEOs at later stage companies, et cetera. It's like um, I, I think it's certainly it makes a better story to dramatize it, which which is fun. But I, I think it I think in many ways it ends up creating a barrier to doing it. I, I, yeah. I think it's a lot more accessible than people realize. I'd say if there's anything that helped us kind of succeed or kind of break out of this pattern where for a long time we were just trying to find product market fit and we we're building all of these different things that didn't work out. It's actually the closeness and kind of the relationship of the four of us at the time um, and how we kind of built things out as a team. Basically, when we started, we started with this classroom idea. It was myself, Peter, Ilya, and Ian. And I think it took about a year and a half of just failure, various failed ideas where we were all living in the same apartment. We were all uh, constantly thinking and brainstorming and figuring out what next idea we'd take. We had whiteboards like lining the walls. We'd basically be hanging out 24-7. Peter and I shared a room where there was a foot and a half uh, between the two beds, <laughs> and there was really nothing else in the room. I think that kind of closeness um, and the strength of the relationship that you get from just working with other people for that period of time is really what allowed us to then, when we came to the current idea, just execute relentlessly against it and actually build out, segment, uh, kind of the primordial pieces of what exists today. Yeah, I think having co-founders to rely on is such a humongous advantage, if, if, if only because it helps you not quit. I mean, when you talk about spending a year, year and a half working on an idea that ultimately didn't pan out, that's so much harder to endure that and keep going as a solo founder uh, where nobody else understands what you've been going through, no one has seen the journey, nobody can really you know, talk to you about it as an equal versus having people who are doing it with you and you just say, okay, you know, this might not work out, but at least we're all together, we can figure something else out. Was there ever a time where you guys were on the verge of quitting before you ended up getting into Y Combinator and dropping out? I would say 100% that the most important part of the relationship was the like quitting prevention mechanism. I don't think in that in that year and a half of sort of struggling for product market fit between when we got into Y Combinator and when we uh, launched AnalyticsJS on Hacker News, I don't think there was a moment that anybody seriously considered actually leaving or quitting or going and getting a job. We were all deeply committed to each other as co-founders. And I think that, that the strength of that personal relationship and a few other smaller things that we did to, to sort of make it a fun or environment that we wanted to be in made a pretty huge difference in actually allowing us to ride out that year and a half of bad times. An example of another thing was we slightly overspent on having a nice office slash apartment so that it would be a place that we wanted to be rather than a place that over time grew to be a place that you know we wouldn't want to be. Um, so it was like a, an apartment with a view, for example, which I think it makes it some place that you want to be. 
Yeah, it's like little things like that and just paying attention to your psychology and your mindset to extend your ability to actually, you know, give your all to what you're working on. And I think another thing that you guys did that is challenging for a lot of people is that you were able to juggle, at least to, to a certain degree, multiple responsibilities because MIT is not an easy school to be at. And in fact, having any amount of coursework or a job or family to take care of uh, really takes away from the time that you can devote to your startup. How much time are you guys spending on your first ideas while you were still in school? So I guess when we first uh, applied to YC, we were honestly just building prototypes. And so we applied just after, or kind of at the tail end of junior year. And at that point, we were going around to all of the professors that we knew. We even talked to Robert Morris, who was a Y Combinator partner. And we said, hey, what would you like to exist for your students and your lectures? And it was kind of out of those conversations that we spent uh, maybe the last 90% of the last four weeks of school just focused on that piece as we were applying and then subsequently got in and then subsequently said, okay, at this point, we're going to decide to take some time off from school and actually focus on this chance full time because we feel like it's one of those kind of unique opportunities that might not come around again. So tell me about the idea that you guys got into YC with and and what those first months in YC were like. Yeah, so the idea was that we would build a classroom lecture tool that would give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused the students were. And uh, we were pretty excited about it because we were students and we felt like, you know, these classes could be like livened up by a little bit of feedback between or interaction between the students and the professor. And some professors were excited about it. Uh, You know, Robert Morris had basically said that this was what he wanted. He wanted a button that students could push. And so, you know, we applied to YC with that idea. And I I remember very distinctly in the YC interview, (laughs) Robert Morris is one of the YC partners. And uh, he was in there with Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston and so forth. And PG is like asking us a bunch of questions about this. He's like, oh, I always wanted this as a student because like the professors would say something dumb. And then all of a sudden he turns to Robert Morris and he says, would you use this? And Robert Morris, I shit you not, says no. <laughs> Flat no. <laughs> what a betrayal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we right were after like, asked Are you two weeks earlier. <laughs> <laughs> were you guys um, mortified? Briefly mortified and then tried to recover, like, well, we talked to these other 20 professors and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so they let us in anyways. Uh, yeah, that was the first – that was the idea for all of Y Combinator. We raised about 500K at Demo Day uh, on that idea. And then that fall semester, we put this into the classroom for the first time. And it was like an unmitigated disaster. Oh, no. Basically, all the students opened their laptops and they all just went straight to Facebook, uh, which is – probably what we should have expected to begin with. Turns out putting laptops in the classroom is incredibly distracting. Uh, we actually saw we, we saw a study up here. Someone did a rigorous scientific study and determined that when students have their laptops out in class, they spend about 60 to 70% of their time not paying attention, uh, which was pretty much what we found in our less rigorous uh, product market fit experiments as well. So it, it seems like you guys really didn't spend very much time before launching actually testing this out. You were doing a lot of customer interviews, with professors, and perhaps students. Is that like a lesson that you guys took away from that that changed how you worked on your future products? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, that's not to say that we didn't do any testing of the product. Uh, I remember we'd frequently be biking over to Stanford and kind of like a map. Uh, dash and like testing in summer classes there or take the train up to Berkeley from our apartment in South Bay and 
be meeting professors after class or almost ambushing them and saying like, hey, I just saw your lecture. Would you like to try out this new product? But I think in terms of how we kind of took their feedback and how we looked at student use across the classrooms, we didn't really understand the lecture dynamics where for the best professors, it's almost more of a performance art and they already understand where students confuse. And instead, we were trying to kind of push our view of the world onto these professors rather than really understanding and listening to what their concerns were. And I think if we'd been further along, we would have probably taken a step back and said, okay, what's really working about this product? And th there were some things that were certainly working, like students would take pages and pages of notes in the product, uh, which in retrospect seems crazy for a startup that's three months old and has no visible signs that it's going to persist any longer than that. Would you actually trust all of your course notes inside that product? But interestingly enough, people did. And so as we were transitioning uh, kind of through the next idea in the next year, we started paying much closer attention to the problems that we were actually trying to solve and not going in with any pre-baked assumptions about how things should be and instead figuring out what the customer actually needed. So what did your next product end up being? Because you know, a, a note-taking tool or, or a tool for you know, students to signal to professors when they don't understand what's going on is so far removed from what you've ultimately ended up with, which is segment. I'm curious what the sort of trail of breadcrumbs was to get you to where you are now. Yeah, I think the, the big failure in that first product was that we felt like it was how we wanted the, the world to work as opposed to what problems the world had. In sort of as shifting as we shifted out of that product, we were trying to think of like, well, what problems did we encounter when we were trying to build this? And we felt like one of the problems that we had encountered was trying to use an analytics tool to actually properly segment the data. So the existing analytics tools at the time wouldn't allow us to analyze how one classroom had used the tool differently than another classroom. So we decided, okay, it's important that we build a better analytics tool. And this is a bad idea from a bunch of, for a bunch of reasons. It's very difficult to sell the value of insights because the value is fairly unclear uh, and very spiky. Uh, so it's difficult to sell an analytics tool. It's a really crowded market. There's a lot of companies that build analytics tools, uh, which now, of course, is to the advantage of Segment since we integrate with all of these, uh, all of these different companies, and there are hundreds of them, if not thousands. And at any rate, we decided to build an analytics tool that would do advanced segmentation, and this is actually where the name segment came from. So we spent about a year building out the infrastructure and, and, and so forth to make this advanced segmentation possible. Frankly, really struggled to get product market, continued to struggle to get product market fit for the reasons that I mentioned before. It was crowded, um, difficult to sell the value of insights, et cetera. So we spent basically the next year sort of rumbling along with that and never really got any customers to really adopt it and depend on it. So we got to December 2012, so we're now a year and a half in, and we were starting to run low on cash uh, from having raised at Demo Day, and we realized we should probably go back and talk to Paul Graham and sort of get his thoughts on how we should proceed. So we had office hours with him, and we were walking around a little cul-de-sac by YC, and bring him up to speed, and he sort of stops and looks us straight in the eye and says, so just to be clear, you've spent half a million dollars, and you have nothing to show for it. Uh -huh. How'd you guys feel about that? Uh, that was pretty much our low point, I think. This <laughs> um, <laughs> is not, not a great feeling. Um, I, I told him this story later, and, and he, he looked at me, he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> that was the situation. <laughs> he was totally right. Um, he was like, yeah, I was right. That was exactly what was going on. 
So did he give you, did he give you guys any constructive feedback after that? Or was it sort of just a, a pep talk? Uh, it was sort of just a pep talk. And then we were like, okay, well, we need to figure out a new idea here. So pause there. Rewind all the way back to that first week of YC. And in that first week of YC, we'd been like, well, we should have analytics on our classroom lecture tool. And so we had Googled them all and we found Google Analytics, Kissmetrics, and Mixpanel. And we were trying to look at these three tools and like figure out which one, which one we should use. And we were like, okay, well, Google Analytics seems like it's more marketing-y. Kissmetrics is sort of more revenue-y. And Mixpanel is more product-y in sort of how they do think about their analysis. But like, we don't know which one. And then we looked at the APIs for collecting data and we're like, okay, the APIs are like kind of similar for collecting data, but like actually if you sort of squint your eyes, it's like it's the same data flowing into all three systems. So rather than decide which one we want to integrate or which one we want to use, which is a business problem, we're just going to solve an engineering problem, which are the sorts of problems we know how to solve, and we're just going to send the same data into all three tools by building this abstraction that can send data anywhere. Like, okay, cool. So we built that little library, it was like hundred lines of code in hundreds of thousands that we wrote for that classroom lecture tool and we like set it aside and forgot about it. And then like four months later we needed to use that sort of thing again. So we like cleaned it up a little bit, improved it, and then set it aside. Four months later, cleaned it up a little bit more, maybe pulled it out as a separate library, and then forgot about it again. And then we were trying to sell our own analytics tool at this point. And we kept encountering this objection, which was, well, I already have Mixpanel installed and so I don't really want to use your analytics tool. Like, it's too much of a burden to install it. So we're trying to figure out how to, like, growth hack our way around this. Uh, and our co-founder, Ilya, was like, well, what if we took this library, added ourselves as the fourth service that it can send data to, and then every time someone has that objection, we give them this little library so that they can install us alongside and give us, like, a fair shot. And we're like, oh, that's a cool idea. And so we did that. We took this little piece of code, open-sourced it, and started sending it out to people. And they started replying, like, oh, this library is awesome. Uh, I'll definitely use it. And then we'd follow up a couple weeks later, and they, we'd be like, hey, we saw you're using the library, but you're still not sending data to our analytics service. Here's the API key. All you have to do is drop it in. And they're like, well, the library is fantastic, but like, I don't really want to use your analytics service. Okay. Uh, so a few more months go by, and we start noticing that this little library is getting a few stars on GitHub. And we don't really take that much notice of it, but it's definitely the first time that something has had sort of this organic pull. And so we, we definitely took a little bit of notice of it. And then we had this conversation with PG, uh, we sort of sat down, and Calvin and Ian had put together this manifesto, which was, we think there's a big business behind Analytics.js, which is this open source library that routes data to different analytics tools. And I was like, guys, this is the worst idea I've ever seen. This is four or 500 lines of code. It's already open source. Like, I in no way see how this can turn into a, a like significant business opportunity. And we argued about it all day, and I went home, and I was like racking my brains, like, how do, we, how do I kill this idea? Like, this is, this is the worst. I finally figured it out. I came in the next day, and I was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a, like, a really amazing landing page. It's going to be really beautiful. I was like, really trying to sell them on this. Uh, and then we're going to put up this landing page on Hacker News, and we're going to see what happens. And I was thinking, like, this will, be, this will kill it off, and we can like, go find something. something <laughs> so we built it. I think it maybe took us a day or something, and we put it up on Hacker News. This was on December 12, 2012. 12, 12, 12. Still remember and the it date. Went, yeah, it went straight to the top. <laughs> um, it was a very humbling experience for me. Peter and, came up with the perfect way to validate it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was like thousands of email signups, thousands of stars on GitHub. People are reaching out to us on LinkedIn demanding access to this thing. So the whole thing blew up in like 36 hours, basically. We sat down and we were like, well, I, <laughs> I guess we found product market fit. So uh, let's build a hosted version of this library because it's kind of a pain in the ass to use as an open source library. And uh, so we built that. 
over the next five days and launch that on December 17th. And then, um, you know, we had this giant waiting list. So by December 30th, we had about 70 companies sending maybe 20 events per second through the system. That's amazing. And I really like how you, you mentioned earlier that you're going to people to, to get them to use the product and they were complaining. You know, they were saying, we're already using Mixpanel, we don't want to use it. And your instant reaction was, okay, well, how do we growth hack our way around the problem? And I think that's the reaction that a lot of founders have, which is, I think, somewhat contrary to like the YC mantra of, of make something that people want, right? Where ultimately, if you make something that people want, you don't have to, to growth hack your way around any sort of objections, right? You put it up on Hacker News or your target audience, wherever they are, and they love it because it clearly solves some problem or it, it does whatever it is that they really want to do. What was your, your next step after that? Did you end up raising money? So then we spent about a month just sort of tidying up the product. We built some like dead end things. Like we tried building a dashboard for PG for YC companies to share their growth metrics with PG. That was a bad idea. He never looked at it. And so we had some like dead end product experiments, but eventually we ended up building a bunch more ways to collect data. So like iOS and Android SDKs, ways to collect data from the server side. We only launched with JavaScript data collection that could send data to like seven tools. So within a few months, we had maybe 10 different places that you could send, that you could collect data from, like libraries, and we could probably send data to like 30 tools or so. So we sort of expanded both the sources of data and the destinations of data. And then we really, we launched on TechCrunch, and then we started focusing on marketing. So we built Analytics Academy, which was like a pretty heavy lift in terms of writing good content about analytics and how to get started with analytics. That did well and was like pretty uh, important, I think, in terms of building the brand and starting to drive early adoption. And there was a lot of organic adoption of just like word of mouth uh, starting to happen as well. So by June or so of 2013, um, we had maybe a thousand companies sending data or a thousand customers sending data through segment. We still weren't charging uh, for it. And then at that point, we had maybe like 60K left in the bank or 50K left in the bank. So we were getting, we were pretty much running on empty. How big was your team at this point? It was still just the four of us. Okay. And who's writing all this code? Were all of you guys coding? Because you guys were releasing product after product. Yes. Uh, yes we yeah, were. at that point, yeah, pretty much all of us were coding. Peter was doing a bit more of the like Analytics Academy content. We're all kind of writing blogs as well to figure out what things can we deliver that we've learned that are actually really useful for our audience to understand? Like what sorts of internal code can we put out there as open source uh, kind of to help make more and more people aware of Segment? Okay, so you guys are, basically four of you guys are all contributing. You've got 60K in the bank. Your product seems to be catching on and you've got a thousand companies using you for free. And at this point, I think, you know, you've probably got a few things running through your mind, which is, thank God it's something that's starting to work. But also, we're running out of money. You know, should we try to charge people, or should we try to raise more money? Uh, which decision did you guys make, and what led you to that decision? So we we were pretty solid in the camp of like let's try charging people, but we were also terrified of asking for money. So we just started asking people for like ridiculously small amounts of money. In retrospect, we were like, okay, we should charge like ten dollars a month for the service. Uh, which is just like ludicrous <laughs> so in retrospect. Um, but we were just like terrified of asking for money. It took us yeah, about... I, we, uh, I was going to say that we, we put up this like public pricing page with the $10 a month for analytics routing. And we were really nervous at the time that it was going to set expectations there. And I remember 
Peter and I actually had a manual Stripe script where we'd go through each one of our customers and we'd like, we hadn't set up any form of subscription building. So at that point, we just had to run this script once a month and charge them and just hope that no one got upset at this $10 a month charge. Wow. I mean, we, we, we had one customer that messaged us. I'll never forget this guy. I think Eduardo. He's a customer from Brazil. Uh, he actually messaged me a few months ago. He's still a customer. Um, and he messaged me and he's like, Peter, I'm very concerned about your pricing. And we're like, oh, shit, we're charging too much. And he's like, it's far too low for this to be a sustainable business. And I really want to use Segment for a long time. You really need to find a way to charge me more. <laughs> uh, so it took us maybe like a year to really like ask people for reasonable amounts of money for the value that was being offered. Was this the first point in your entire process where you guys had charged for any of the stuff that you'd made or had you charged for the classroom tool as well at some point? Yeah, no. No, we had never charged for that. Okay. So you, you guys put up this pricing page. How did people respond? Uh, was it enough to kind of pull you guys out of back from the brink of death or did you also have to raise money in addition to that? It definitely was not enough because we weren't asking for for <laughs> we weren't asking for enough. So I think we got to maybe like a thousand dollars a month in revenue or something like that, and then uh, which I guess was a big deal at the time. But um, then we're like, the only way this works is if we is if we raise around. So uh, we raised two million in in sort of seed funding, and we we're like, okay, we're going to build out a team, we're going to hire someone to do sales, and we're going to like figure out how to actually sell sell to real companies here because up to that point we had been mostly. Uh, working with small startups, but we were starting to see larger companies sign up. And we were like, okay, well, actually, maybe this is a problem that gets worse as you get into larger companies, and larger companies are more willing to pay. So we should probably start thinking about building out a sales effort. So uh, we did. We, we hired a, started building a team um, for a salesperson, uh, Raf, uh, joined, and uh, I was sort of his sales engineer. And over the course of that first six months after he started, so the first part of 2014, we basically went from zero to a million in annual revenue in the first half of that year and the second half from one to 2.5. So that 2014 from a revenue perspective was sort of the breakout year. That's humongous. Were there, were there any lessons that you guys learned, you know, going to making like your first hundred thousand dollars in revenue that, you know, stopped applying when you were trying to grow from 1 million to two and a half million? Because I'm aware of, I talked to a lot of founders at various stages and the things that are important in one phase are very often not important in another phase and vice versa. Was there sort of a stair-step approach that you guys had to take or was it kind of smooth sailing all the way up to that amount? Yeah, I think I think Jason Lumpkin does a, uh, also known as Saster, does like a good breakdown of sort of like the stages of revenue, at least from what we saw. So like zero to a million in revenue uh, was just sort of like a mad scramble where what we really had to figure out was how to ask for a reasonable contract size given the value that we were providing and frankly it's like it's a little bit of a ridiculous process I think to like train someone with an engineering background like myself to ask for that so we had the sales advisor uh, Mitch who basically we went to one of these sales meetings and he's like you have to ask for 120k a year keep in mind we like the most we had been thinking before this was $120 a year <laughs> um, so this is a thousand x more and I was like dude I don't know if I like that's crazy like I don't know if I can do that He's like, Peter, if you don't ask for $120,000 a year, then I quit as your advisor. Wow. And I was like, well, I guess I'm asking for $120,000 a year. Uh, <laughs> from one so customer? Asked, yeah, from one customer, yeah. So I asked, and uh, he negotiated me down to $18,000 a year, which was pretty <laughs> embarrassing, but was, was also an, two orders of magnitude higher than what I expected. So 
there was that. Uh, and, you know, basically it was like a six-month period of us asking for increasingly larger amounts of money until we stopped turning beet red when we would ask for it. And then people were like, yeah, it is that valuable to me. I'm happy to pay it. That's insane. Do you remember their reaction when you first said 120K? Were they taken aback? Well, I turned beet red, so then they just sort of gave me a comical look. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people listening is that a lot of us are developers and our primary skill set is writing code, right? So we know how to build a product, we know how to keep it running, we know how to write tests. But once we start getting into these areas of sales and marketing and these other things that seem like intangible dark arts, they're scary, you know, and we don't really know how to take the first step and to getting good at those things. What did you do besides having advisors that, that taught you these skills? Yeah, I think it's actually not just that they're sort of mysteries. I think there are some strange idealisms in the developer community around whether things should be free or how much they should cost. And the costs are often like, like, like I think there's a lot of just like um, sacred cows that often come along that really end up being a pretty significant hindrance in actually building a business. Like when you are setting pricing in motion, it doesn't matter how much it costs to provide the service. All that matters is that you bill significantly less than the value that you're providing. Because then it's a totally reasonable transaction for the customer. It's super helpful to them. It's like massive net positive. So your costs are kind of irrelevant. But I think because on the engineering side, you're mostly thinking about cost and you're mostly thinking about how the thing itself functions. It's a shift in perspective to take the perspective of the customer and what value you're providing them and, and sort of their whole view on the, on the transaction. So I, I think there are just like some strange sacred cows that end up being a, a hindrance to building the rest of the business that are sort of superpowers on the engineering side, but a hindrance on the, on the other parts of, of building business. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I like what you said about taking the perspective of the customer, just because that's so crucial in pretty much every phase of running a startup. Like when you're doing your, your classroom tool, you know, if you guys had known somehow magically what every person wanted and you were able to get into their mindset, then you would have built a much better product. You know, and the same thing applies to not only building product, but sales, how much to charge, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think the major perspective here that we had, or the perspective shift, at least in my mind, was we started out thinking of ourselves as primarily a developer tool, where it's something that you start using segment and it's much easier to hook these things up, or you don't have to worry about integrating new tools for your data any longer. But when we talk to companies out on the market who are using segment, they saw it as saving their developers' time. Internally, they have a team of maybe 10 or 15 people who are maintaining this giant data pipeline, uh, and they're spending a bunch of cycles on that. And those 10 to 15 people end up being really expensive, particularly if they're highly trained software engineers. And so to most of our customers, they don't think of us as a developer tool, but just a service that we provide such that they can now take those 10 to 15 people and start them on something that's much more ROI positive for the business. It's such a, an amazing insight to start thinking that way. I mean, I talked to uh, Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio11, and another guy, Brendan Dunn, on the podcast months and months ago. And they were both working as contractors or consultants at some point in their career, which I have also done. And I charged like a pretty decent rate, or so I thought at the time. I was charging like companies 125 an hour to work with me. And these guys were charging like multiples of that just because they understood that they would look at things from the customer's perspective and they could calculate exactly how much value they were providing, how much money they were making these companies that they worked with, how much money they were saving them, 
Uh, whereas I was looking at myself as just a good developer. So I priced myself relative towards other developers. And so I wasn't able to charge nearly as much. How did you guys come to understand the value of segment? And how did you end up having that switch in your mind from, okay, this is just a developer tool to, okay, here's how much money we're going to save customers? I think the first part is you sort of have to test the limits of what the customer is willing to pay. Customers aren't stupid, right? Like they're doing the analysis on their side to decide whether it's worth it or not. Like you can you can sort of test with your with your pricing, especially if you're doing more uh, like mid market or enterprise sales, where you really are sitting down with a with a customer and talking talking it through with them, um, and coming to a reasonable price. Every conversation we would try double the price that we had tried previously until we like hit a ceiling, and it was very obvious that like okay we hit a ceiling like we have exceeded the actual value or a reasonable return on the value that we're providing. So that gives you some numerical cap. And then you can also just talk with customers and understand, like, when you use segment, what value does that provide you? Which sounds weird. It's so bizarre to, like, uh, flip the conversation and, like, ask a customer or a prospect, like, what do you find value? Like, what do you value in the product? Um, Because usually you're, like, pitching, pitching, pitching. But to flip the gears and, like, have them tell you why they find it valuable, you then hear in their words, like, well, the thing I find valuable about this is that like these three engineers are going to do this other thing for these four months and then I won't need this other, I won't need to hire someone to maintain this ongoing. And you're like, okay, well, that just gave you your ROI calculation, right? <laughs> Those three engineers are going to do something else for four months. What's the value of that? And this ongoing maintenance person. So you, by sort of understanding how they think about the value and then testing the limits, I think you can, you can pretty accurately narrow in on what the price should reasonably be. It's really cool to see like the difference in what you guys were doing, kind of this like pre and post product market fit phases of your company. Or beforehand, you're so focused on, you know, iterating and, and changing your product and trying to find something that people like. But once you hit on that, then it turned into kind of a, a, a process of doubling your prices and talking to customers and estimating how much your, your product was worth. And you're kind of sitting on this rocket ship that just needed to be fine tuned in a way. But also, I mean, I, you guys obviously haven't stopped developing segments as a product. How did you guys balance product changes and actually improving what what it was you guys were building with efforts like sales and marketing, which don't really affect your product and just affect your positioning in customers' minds? Yeah, I think we we never really thought about those two as a trade-off. So we never really, I, I don't think we really thought about it as like, well, we could either develop a new product or we could invest in sales and marketing. I think once you have product market fit, it, you can sort of look at sales as, sales and marketing as a unit and say like, well, if we invest more heavily here, then what, like, how much revenue will that generate? And then separately on the product development side, you can say like, well, do we have the resources today to just sort of solidify our existing product, or do we have the resources to sort of like pursue building a new product? So I, I sort of see them as independent tracks, and I think. As a result of that, we actually started building out a sales and marketing team much earlier than, or at least a sales team much earlier than most companies do. Raf was our, our basically first hire, and he, he um, led sales. So, you know, from the, the fifth person in the company was a salesperson, um, which I think is a little bit unusual, um, at least for companies founded by young engineers. So I, I think that team, that sales team, just sort of grew with customer demand. Uh, and then meanwhile, we sort of separately built out the product development and, and engineering org um, at sort of the pace that it could grow. We never really saw those as a trade-off. We, we have built a number of sort of significant expansions to the product every time. The most significant one was probably warehouses initially, where we sort of realized that one of the most important destinations for people's data was their data warehouse. 
Um, people wanted that data in Redshift and BigQuery and so forth. So we launched that uh, maybe like a year and a half or two years later. And that was big in that it like pulled us up market and, and really sort of expanded the, the value that we were providing to, to customers in a significant way. And then also sources. So massively expanding the number of places where we could pull data outside of people's products and starting to pull data from the cloud services that they were using, like payment systems like Stripe or Zendesk or uh, Salesforce and, or, or so forth. So, you know, the, the product has expanded in a number of different ways as we felt that we have the sort of bandwidth to, to expand it. But it's always been two sort of separate investment engines, if you will. It sounds like you guys were really spending a lot of time learning from your customers. Like your success was feeding into the ideas that you were able to come up with for what products to provide that your customers would actually like. But a lot of people aren't at that phase yet where they're they're so successful that they have paying customers who said, yeah, I'll pay you more for this feature. It is dramatically easier to find your second product market fit than your first one. Because your second product market fit, you have a defined customer base and you go to them and you've solved the problem for them. As soon as you solve a problem for someone, they will like tell you all their problems, right? Like, because they're like, oh, maybe you can solve this or this or this or this. <laughs> they're like, Apparently you solved, you solved something. So they're excited to tell you about everything else anyways. So it's much easier to find product market fit repeatedly after you find it once. Were there any mistakes that you guys made or things that, you know, after this point where things were starting to take off, that if you go back, you would do it completely differently? I feel like it's hard to say if we do anything completely differently. The one thing that I wish we had done a lot more of a lot earlier was kind of written everything down. I think we have a decent culture of writing at Segment now, whether that's on the blog or on our internal wiki uh, or just kind of recording things as we learn them. But earlier on, we were just sort of slapdash, like moving really quickly, kind of throwing stuff together, and we didn't have enough time to write down all of our assumptions, why we were building the things that we built, and in what way it made sense to build them. And I think that hurt us over, over the long term because we didn't keep in mind which assumptions would change, you know? Like in the case, suddenly there's this new product, Redshift, uh, that's out on the market. For instance, we built initially uh, the ability for customers to just instantly spin up a Redshift instance, uh, which is this data warehouse, and we would manage it all for them. Over time, as more and more customers started adopting the Redshift instances, uh, we realized that simultaneously it wasn't that great for us because we would continually have to tweak the sizing of these Redshift instances. We had a view into all of their monitoring, but we'd have to kind of babysit them. And on the customer's end, it wasn't good either because they uh, had no window into what that Redshift instance was doing. They couldn't see any of the metrics. They couldn't see the sizing. They couldn't see the data loads. And so eventually we said, oh, our assumption that what customers really want is just sort of some like turnkey uh, Redshift instance here isn't actually the reality. They'd rather be able to have the customization of managing it themselves. So in that case, we kind of flipped our assumptions, but it would have been much easier to do had we written that all down and made them kind of explicit from the start. Is there any sort of startup philosophies or schools of thought, like the lean startup or, or things that Peter Thiel's written in Zero to One or Crossing the Chasm? I mean, there's all sorts of startup movements and books and, and things that people preach for how you should run a startup. Is there any one in particular that guided how you guys grew your company? I think the synthesis business books where they have like a point of view where they've sort of synthesized across a bunch of research that they've done or whatever, I think those are helpful. I think there's like a bottomless stack of those books to read. I found a lot of the biographies of some of the like uh, great 
founders uh, to be possibly more helpful because they the story helps it sort of stick and see how these principles really play out. Made in America, the story of, of Walmart's founding, I think is pretty fascinating. Um, Elon Musk's biography, who says elephants can't dance about IBM sort of getting reinvented, um, software about the rise of Larry Ellison. These sorts of books really like those stories help solidify what things really look like in practice, maybe a little bit more than just focusing on like the ideals from, from sort of pure business books that are a little bit more synthesized, but a little bit more abstract. I feel like startups are this interesting class of problem where you can get the same advice from 10 different places. And like with YC, they plaster it all over the shirts that you get the first day. There are stickers. They all say just make something people want. You can get that advice and it sounds so simple, but until you've screwed it up enough and done enough failures yourself, it's really hard to internalize what that means until you both failed and then subsequently succeeded at it. And so I think it's sometimes tough to get kind of traditional advice from these books without kind of going through those motions yourself uh, and actually failing at them once and then succeeding at them after the fact. But I do think they kind of help sprinkle in ideas, particularly now as we've grown into a little bit later stage, just following uh, what other companies are doing and how they're operating and how they're running. And at least in our case, I find we try certain ideas from those um, and implement them. Peter recently was talking to a few other founders and had this idea for product pitches, the general idea that people kind of pitch what products they want to work on every six weeks or every two months. And so we've adopted some of those sorts of ideas internally based upon what we hear. But I think it's really hard to take those sorts of lessons in the early stage when really the whole world is kind of your unknown universe, as it were. I saw someone, or someone told me recently, or they sent a tweet actually, and I think they said that if startup advice is short enough to fit inside of a tweet, then it, you can guarantee it will be misunderstood and misinterpreted. <laughs> <laughs> and I think make something people want is like a perfect example because like I, I went through IC too and I don't know how many times I heard that and then went off and like made stuff that people did not want and didn't really catch it until, you know, months and months, maybe even years later. Uh, we did exactly yeah, the same I thing. I think it's funny how you realize what kind of all the YC partners were saying only, or at least in our case, it was only after the fact. It was like a year and a half after we'd been through YC. We were like, oh, that's what they meant. What is it you think is so hard uh, to internalize about this advice? And, you know, how could you, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but how would you try to explain it to a new founder or somebody who's just starting out and might not fully understand it? I tried to explain this whole concept at the YC Stanford class with a lecture on product market fit. But I think the problem for me personally was that I didn't actually know what product market fit felt like. So I didn't know when we had it or didn't have it. And basically I only had, if you imagine sort of like you're trying to train a machine learning algorithm in your head, and I only had data on the like negative side. Like this is not, and this is not, and this is not. <laughs> And you're like, well, it doesn't really give you like a boundary. Like if you're trying to train a classifier, this is like a really bad data set. And so once we had one success and once we sort of like knew what that felt like with launching Analytics.js and sort of feeling the product market fit there, it was like, oh, and all of a sudden the classifier got like much stronger. 
in that presentation at Stanford, I was like trying to help people like just understand what it feels like to find product market fit, so they could maybe have like at least by proxy one data point on the other side of that classifier. I think that's the that's the hard part. Is like it's a very sparse data set, and it's almost entirely one sided. Yeah. So I just want to talk about the future of segment two because I think it's it's kind of a clue into like your psychology and where you guys are going with this. What are your goals as as founders and how have they changed over time? Because I'm sure there are things you guys are thinking about now that you probably didn't even consider four or five years ago. Yeah, I think we have like a reasonably well-developed sort of like vision and product strategy for where we want the product to go in the next, uh, or we think the product should go in the next, mm, let's call it five, maybe 10 years, based on all the conversations and learnings that we've had with customers about what problems they have and how we think we can solve them with Segment. Um, so we, we're doing a major product launch uh, in October, so I can't, I can't sort of totally talk about uh, what's coming. But what matters the most to me is executing against that product strategy and solving a lot of the problems that customers have with data, with customer data, with actually being able to market and support their customers effectively, and sort of solving their, those problems for them with the products that we're building, and basically building out the vision that we set out over the last few years. That's what matters the most to me. And uh, I think there's like a certain size of company and funding structure and so forth that people probably talk about more in the press that like supports that sort of impact uh, that we're trying to have with that vision. But um, I think what, what ultimately matters to us is less like, oh, we're going to IPO or whatever, and is more like what really matters is building out that vision and bringing it to all the companies that really need it. What about your personal goals as founders? I think for me at least... Uh what I've appreciated most about our journey at Segment is just having kind of a front row seat into the life of a startup. At least I know Peter has mentioned this on a couple of different occasions, but uh, he likes to say that every startup has their own totally unique journey and no two are really alike. So I think that's part of the reason that these business books are so fascinating is because when you're figuring things out and defining a new company structure and defining like what the org looks like or what the priorities look like, there's no real right answer. And so that discovery has been at least incredibly rewarding for me. And I'd like to continue seeing it forward kind of over the coming years. What about you, Peter? What are your personal goals? I'm not sure that my personal goals differ very much from the company goals. You've become segment. Yeah, I think founders get pretty deeply tied up in terms of their identity with the company, <laughs> I think, uh, for better or worse. I've seen companies get acquired where this basically, well, it has a it has a very destructive impact on a on a founder. I think when they're when I've seen uh, founders have companies get acquired. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally understand that, and I think in a way, having your goals so aligned with that of the company is a tremendous advantage. You know, and it's why you should probably do something that's at least somewhat interesting to you. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, five ten years down the road when you're still working on this business, you might hate your life. Totally. It's kind of funny because you initially wanted to kill the idea and now you seem, now you're the CEO, you know, and your identity is all wrapped up in that. What changed besides, besides just like the success of Segment? Uh, I think I didn't understand what it actually was. So the initial idea was like, well, we have, there's this open source library and like, it's a really good abstraction for sending data to different analytics tools. And I was like, that's just not that exciting. Like, how many analytics tools are there? How many analytics tools is a company actually going to use? Like what? Like who cares? 
And then it turns out that like, well, the data that we're collecting is like not just useful for analytics tools, it's also useful for email marketing tools and push notifications and help desks and CRMs and security and fraud tools and data warehouses and advertising conversion pixels. Like I could go on and on. This is like this data about what interactions a customer is having with a company are like deeply important to every aspect of the business. And that's a totally different proposition. So I think we launched this thing not really knowing what it was, to be honest. And then as we saw people start using it and uh, learned from them, from the customers, like what it actually represented to them and what it could become, that became far more exciting. I think it took us, I'd say, actually, we had so much downward momentum in our morale. I think our morale as a founding team bottomed out like a month after we hit product market fit. And then it started coming back up as we realized sort of what was actually happening. And uh, yeah, I think, I think the year or two after that of sort of the journey of actually understanding what problem we were really solving for people gave us, gave us a ton of motivation to actually go like really invest a lot of time in solving it. Yeah, and that morale is is extremely important. Anyway, I think that's a really good point to end the interview on. I know you guys got places to go and things to do, um, but I really appreciate you guys coming on the podcast. You had some really awesome insights. And why don't you tell people where they can go to learn more about you guys personally and about Segment as a company? Yeah, you can learn more about Segment at segment.com. And uh, my personal blog is rein.pk. Yep, and my personal blog is calv.info. But I write mostly for the segment blog these days. So go check that one out. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Indie Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out. And I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com forum. Hope to see you guys there.